Good evening. Welcome to The Crisis After Trump, an interview and discussion with Mike Davis. Uh, my name is Diane Feely. I'm a member of Solidarity and on the editorial board of Against the Current, and I'll be chairing this evening's meeting. This webinar is brought to you by Solidarity, a socialist organization built on the principle that changing this world order must come through the independent organization of working people and the oppressed, including women, African-Americans, Latinos, queer and disabled constituencies. Our very name proclaims that an injury to one is an injury to all. So here we are, having lived through the financial crisis and the great recession of a decade ago, a series of wars and occupations, and four years of Trump, we face the interlocking crises of increasing climate change, growing inequality, inequality and a pandemic. Yet last November, over 70 million US citizens voted for Trump, the incompetent authoritarian whose rule depended upon his bullying, lying, his failures and his enabling of violent white nationalists. And on top of that, neoliberal capitalism is planning to restructure our lives and our jobs as fast as they can. So I'm going to ask Mike Davis, a prolific author, urban theorist and researcher, a few questions to open up this discussion. Mike's first book was Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the US in the History of the US Working Class. Since then, he's written a number of books on a variety of topics, including his prophetic, The Monster at Our Door, which raised the threat of a global pandemic, and then has written up a follow-up for today's pandemic, The Monster Enters. Along with discussing these crises, we'll be looking also at the prospects for social movements and progressive politics as we begin a new chapter under the Biden administration. So after I pose a series of questions, there'll be time for questions and discussion. So uh, without uh, further uh, introduction, I want to go to the first question, which is about the pandemic. Mike, how much of the US pandemic disaster can be specifically attributed to the Trump regime's malevolent incompetence and how much to the underlying mess of our public health system? Well, there's a, a third term, Diane, that we should consider, which is that up until April, toward the end of April, you could attribute this to the first two things, the regime's incompetence and the hollowing out of American public health. For instance, 60,000 public health jobs. I'm not talking about nurses or doctors talking about people who work for public health agencies across the country, lost their jobs. Those were never restored. Uh, the hospitals using just-in-time inventory uh, uh, models eliminated a million hospital beds in the United States from the Reagan period onward, giving almost no redundancy uh, or provision uh, for medical emergencies. We could go on and on. But the third thing is this, from late April onwards, when President Trump summoned his key, key party puppeteers to bring out their masses, 
when he said, liberate Michigan, and the armed crowds began to appear on the steps, when being unmasked was a macho symbol of loyalty to the president. From that point on, Trump becomes the principal vector of the pandemic. And one of the things that I'm fearful about is that we're not going to have any real criminal investigation of his administration's uh, active campaign against necessary public health measures. They're distorted, deliberately distorted information. Their reliance on quacks, on uh, neo-Nazi policy, also in the case of uh, the British conservatives, of herd immunity, uh, which became actually the official administration uh, uh, policy in the two months before the elections. So the point here is that we have a structural crisis. Our entire system of uh, public health, hospitalization, drug development uh, is crazy and utterly inadequate uh, to the task of facing an age of pandemics. But we must insist, and we must be really rigorous in, about this, that the role of the Trump administration was straightforwardly a criminal role launched a campaign against the campaign that his own administration was theoretically uh, uh, carrying on. And I'm afraid this is gonna be lost. Now that the Democrats are concentrated on impeachment and the events of January the 6th, the much more important question of liability and responsibility for the unnecessary death of hundreds of thousands of Americans uh, may not be raised. There needs to be a public inquiry and one that doesn't avoid this question of criminal li liability for it, because that's exactly uh, how it should be framed and understood. Well, you know, one of the questions that I wanted to ask as a follow-up about the pandemic is that it seems to me that uh, aside from those people who are uh, off on their uh, Trumpification of, of the whole pandemic, but those who are really trying to find information about what they should do and what's the latest about the, uh, the virus, um, seem to be up on things. TV seems to be telling them. But what seems to be really lost in all of this is what can we as a society do in order to minimize any future pandemics? Well, we can't do it just as one society. The approach has to be global. It has to be deeply internationalist in its values and strategy. There's an ancient debate in public health uh, between two camps. One camp represented by this initial successes of American military doctors at the end of this uh, Spanish-American war and the US domination of Cuba and Central America was to launch militarized campaigns against a specific bacteria or 
the case of malaria, protozoa or virus, and to concentrate on either attacking that directly through some kind of vaccination or eliminating the intermediary that spread uh, the disease, the vector mosquitoes in these cases. This was then picked up by the Rockefeller Foundation. And in the years before the Second World War, the Rockefeller Foundation was the principal force uh, on, on an international scale involved in, in, in financing uh, campaigns against epidemic disease, but carrying them out uh, all on the basis of this highly uh, pathogen focused uh, militarized uh, uh, campaign. But there's a whole other tradition in public health, one that dates back actually as far as the revolution of 1848 and radical uh, uh, German doctors. And that's the tradition of social medicine. The emphasis on social medicine is that by concentrating merely on the pathogen, you leave the conditions that make people uh, vulnerable to epidemics and disease in, in place. You need to have uh, basic uh, community medical care and the reforms that support that, including wage, raising wages and agrarian reforms and so on. Now, this model of social medicine became highly developed in Latin America before the Second World War. And one of its greatest exponents, the, the original crusader or apostle of social medicine, uh, <clears throat> as I say, was a uh, Rudolf Virchow, who's the veteran of, of 48, a German doctor. But one of his major acolytes in the New World was the young Minister of Health and the short-lived Popular Front government in Chile in 1939. His name was Salvador Allende. He wrote a number of, uh, uh, of books on this subject. And after the Second World War, within the World Health Organization, there's a constant battle between the two camps with some of the non-aligned, as we used to call them, non-aligned third, newly independent third world countries the Soviet bloc and social democratic parties in Western Europe supporting the social medicine uh, approach. And the culmination of this was the adoption in 1979 of something called the Alma-Ata uh, Declaration by the World Health Organization at a conference in uh, what was then Soviet Kazakhstan. And this declared that healthcare was an absolutely fundamental human right and needed to be addressed uh, within its full socioeconomic context of creating basic medical services, uh, universal medical services, but enabling people to participate in it by transforming the social conditions which made them vulnerable to disease or directly caused uh, 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 disease. And in a way, what's happened over the last year uh, brings all these old issues uh, 
and debates back to life. We cannot deal with emergent diseases simply on a basis of Fortress America, whether that's the Trumpian version of it or the, uh, you know, the liberal uh, uh, version of it. These diseases, these new diseases that come out of viral reservoirs, which previously have been kept isolated from human communities for the most part, okay. They've been, we've become exposed to them through the practices of things like corporate logging, even things like uh, factory fishing has, uh, you know, has, has a role. Uh, the destruction of rainforests on a large scale, factory raising of poultry and hogs in enormous concentrated complexes. We might have a million chickens at a single uh, poultry fact factory farm in Arkansas or something, or 150,000 hogs out in the middle of uh, uh, the Western desert of Utah in a particularly notorious uh, 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 plant. Unless we address these economic conditions, unless we address the the, the logic of exploitation of natural resources, we can't do anything about the conditions of the emergence. We can monitor it, which is important. But the key is to, you know, the, the rainforests not only act as, you know, our, our major sink for uh, greenhouse gases, they also defend us against uh, these diseases, these viruses, uh, which are resident in uh, mammals and other uh, animals. Coronavirus, until the emergence of uh, SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome virus, in uh, 19. In 2002, we're always associated with benign colds and never considered a serious threat in the same way that influenzas are. But since SARS, research has showed, research done by, particularly by a, a consortium of American and Chinese researchers in the caves of Southern China, discovered that bats harbor hundreds of coronaviruses all potentially transmissible to humans through some intermediary. And they could well be as dangerous or more so than uh, uh, the present virus. And at the same time, the threat of avian flu is now two candidate species, two, two kinds of avian flu that have jumped uh, sporadically to humans with kill rates of over 60%. They're probably only a single genetic modification away from being highly transmissible, in which case we're talking about something on a whole other scale of, of you know, black death type mortality uh, 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 rates. 
I don't want to drag on with this, but we need to address, the world should address this on three levels. The first and most important is developing affordable healthcare on a global scale. Slums are the ideal incubators of epidemic or pandemic uh, uh, disease. People have depressed, suppressed, compromised immune systems because they don't have access to clean water because sanitation uh, produces all kinds of diarrhea-like diseases and, and so on. The second thing is need a campaign against what's essentially a world-destroying industry of mining uh, in a non-renewable way natural resources and simultaneously breaking down the separations between us and these immense viral uh, reservoirs. And thirdly, we need to recognize that the pharmaceutical industry is just a bunch of patent holders who exercise incredible influence on public health organizations across the world. As I discovered back in 2000, uh, I think it was five, when I went to Geneva and talked to the World Health Organization the, from my book, The Monster at the Door, India wanted to manufacture the leading antiviral that had proven effective against avian flu. But the patents held by, I think, uh, in this case, it was Roche, the giant Swiss pharmaceutical firm, uh, stood in the way. They appealed to the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization, you know, tremendously underfunded, relies on the big pharma uh, for financial support. So Roche gave like a million uh, doses of the antiviral and the World Health Organization opposed the generic manufacture. Look at what's happened with vaccines, the current vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, all the research and development was paid by the federal government. And a lot of it came out of uh, public universities, yet they hold the patent to it. Uh, likewise, Pfizer's vaccine was developed uh, development costs of it were paid by the West German uh, uh, government. I mean, that's an idiotic system where the big pharma, which now spends far more on advertising than it does on uh, 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 research, is this essential, essentially this rentier intermediary, uh, which exploits us all through high drug prices, but is only able to produce these drugs through massive uh, public subsidies. It has no credible role in public health whatsoever. And we should recall, my final point here, is once upon a time, the government made its own vaccines. The influenza vaccine that Jonas Salk, amongst others, self-developed for the army 
in the Second World War when it was feared that there might be a repetition of the Spanish flu catastrophe in 1918-1919. That was manufactured, that was developed and manufactured uh, uh, by the federal government. And uh, the very fact that we can't talk about public production of medicines or public ownership of publicly funded uh, research shows to what an extent capital in its very many forms, whether it's logging companies or big farm or private hospital chains or the private equity companies that dominate the nursing homes, has become a major threat uh, to health and survival. And, and capitalism can no longer guarantee increases or even stability of life expectancy and, and health conditions any more than it is any more guaranteed of, um, you know, jobs for most of the uh, population, any more than it can decarbonize uh, the global, uh, you know, economy. So it's not just a matter of some Marxist platitude or hyperbole to say capitalism is a threat to human survival. We're seeing that now in very concrete and particular ways. So now I'm going to ask um, Mike uh, a question moving in a different direction. How do you see the continuing threat of the armed white nationalist extreme right? And what does it mean for the Republican party where maybe half of its voting base is attracted to that kind of hardcore racist nationalism. And I'd just like to say, this is obviously not the first time that we've had uh, a know-nothing uh, uh, situation in the United States, but of course, it wasn't exactly around when we were. And uh, how does it relate to the lynchings that we uh, know about, uh, which also uh, is, uh, you know, is primarily late 19th and uh, 20th century. So what do you say about this, uh, the development of this white nationalist uh, movement at this moment, Mike? Well, first of all, I'm actually far more worried about state capacities for repression and the erosion of basic civil liberties uh, than I am about the threat of uh, right-wing terrorism, though it's real. And you just look at the uh, alacrity with, with which liberals have raised in to propose new domestic terrorism legislation, have applauded the fact that Trump's been expelled from the social media. And it's only in the most narrow-sighted short-term basis that you can see these as good things. As we all know, the lesson of American history is that repressive legislation more often than not will end up being used against the left, against people's movements, against organized uh, uh, workers. And the left needs to be more explicit and uh, talk much louder about these fundamental issues. Because one thing that's happened in all the changes of regimes since the, uh, uh, the second Bush 
administration has been all these laws against terrorism uh, have been rolled over from one government to the next, okay? And the whole idea of reversing them uh, was quickly, quickly lost. So we need to keep sight of the, of the larger picture here because we live in an age of really almost primordial uh, social struggles that will happen, you know, as such a large number of working Americans are, are out of work, living on poverty, wages, facing extremities of daily life that hadn't been seen since uh, the Great Depression. I've been looking at, now in the question of, of Trump done, I've been looking at the 140 so con congressional districts which voted against certification of the election results. And it's very interesting. All you have to do is go to this huge volume called the Almanac of American Politics, the uh, 2018 edition. And it provides um, important descriptions of the social geography, economic forces in these congressional districts. And um, this gives you a lot of clues about what the social anatomy of the Trump uh, hardcore is. And one of the things I've uh, learned recently through looking at district after district is how incredibly effective gerrymandering has been, even more than I expected. Texas, Florida, North Carolina. I mean, there are some gerrymanders out there that uh, uh, look like they've been designed by Salvador uh, uh, Dali. And of course, the new redistricting that will follow in these same states and others under the dominance of uh, Republican state legislatures uh, will be the same thing or worse, particularly because Florida and Texas are going to see a big gift of new congressional seats, maybe seven or eight uh, altogether. But beyond that, the Trump vote, I think, had two components. It's about 74 million people voted for Trump. The, all the polls conducted since his inauguration in 2016 shows somewhere between 38 and 42% of voters unwaveringly loyal to Trump, regardless of the circumstances. He can run the country in depression. He you know, can allow or even encourage the death of hundreds of thousands of people. That vote remains rock solid. And if you apply the 42% uh, ratio to the November vote, there's still 17 or 18 million people who really don't belong to that hardcore. And as I argued in a recent article in the Left Review, I think these were situational Trump supporters 
above all, we're worried about jobs and income security. And because of Biden's failure uh, to command the jobs issue and have a strong economic program to show that jobs and restoring production were inseparable from national pandemic strategy. Trump ended up being able to capture a lot of votes on the basis that uh, an open economy was better than public health safety. People were desperate. And in October before the election, jobs seemed to be coming back. There's a lot of rehiring. The job figures were very good. They crashed again punctually after, uh, you know, after the election. So there's a considerable group of people here who are not the Trump hardcore, not ideologically the hardcore, who vote on a basis. Uh, as I said in this article, I mean, it all comes down to sitting around somebody's kitchen table and the family's got its bills laid out and a candidate walks in and these people in Dubuque or Youngstown, uh, you know, in uh, East St. Louis, they want to know only one thing because they've been hammered by a whole generation of plant closers and job loss. What are you going to do? very simply, to increase economic security and generate more jobs. Here and now, not some fantastical number of jobs uh, out in the, the Great Plains or the deserts building, uh, you know, installing solar you know, panels in, in, and the like. But here and now in this community, and the truth was Biden went back to these places and offered a little more Hillary Clinton had done, essentially abstractions when it needed to be concrete. And in 2016, I'd done a very detailed analysis of about 16 uh, industrial counties in the Great Lakes in the Midwest that had voted for Obama, but then switched to Trump. Marginally, it wasn't a great number people who defected, but uh, it was enough to allow Trump to win the electoral vote. And I went back to these counties um, in November and there's basically no change at all. Now, does this mean that people who voted for Trump as the protest vote were now hardcore Trumpites, you know, wearing a QAnon t-shirts and uh, uh, <clears throat> waiting to, you know, invade the Capitol. No, I don't think so, so at all. I just think that, you know, the Democrats did not significantly improve their program or their message to working class families. Bernie Sanders, in many of these areas, totally had wiped out Clinton in 2016 primaries. And again, uh, in the primaries uh, last year, in the beginning of, uh, uh, of this year. So this is an awful lot of people that I think we can feel co confident uh, 
are not lacking in, in, in class consciousness. They just don't see the political system providing any real answers to the, the economic crisis. But still, what does that leave? The 50 million Americans who are rock solid uh, 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 supporters, who are they? And I believe that this great defection of, of northern industrial, white industrial workers to Trump was only a marginal phenomenon. It was crucial in winning him the election in 2016. But in fact, his great success, the reason he won in 2016 is he did almost as well, but not quite as well as Romney. Clinton did far worse than Obama. And what actually happened in the 2016 election was that the people, the Christian right who supported uh, Cruz was their, their favorite candidate. They agreed to support uh, Trump, as we know, in, in meetings with people like Rebecca Mercer, the uh, billionaire hedge fund heir uh, who finances the extreme right. In return, if he would let them essentially write the Republican platform, which they did, and he very consistently uh, met almost all of their goals, the crowning achievement, of course, been giving them uh, uh, control of the, uh, you know, of the Supreme Court. Who are these people? Well, there's an interesting debate going on about comparing the Trump-based uh, to Nazi voters. There's a big article about this, I think, in the uh, current issue of the nation. And uh, last year, paying medical bills and went back and taught for a year at the big Catholic university here in San Diego. And I taught a long class in fascism. And we looked at this in detail and all the debates about it. And there is in some ways a great uh, similarity. Although one where you need probably to, uh, uh, you know, uh, factor in um, Sinclair Lewis almost as much as Marx. And what we're seeing, you know, are the small town, small city elites. In the New Left Review piece, I cited an example of one small city, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, which is two billionaires, both of whom are essentially pirates, uh, you know, raiding the public till. One, the owner of uh, uh, the largest nursing home uh, company in, in the country, the other, a payday lender. And it's people like these who constitute the traditional Republican power structure and have dominated uh, areas like this almost forever. They were the supporters of Taft, uh, the Senator Taft from Ohio. Uh, they were the little steel people, uh, the family on smaller and medium-sized industrial businesses. But then you add to them 
the exurbs and the outer suburbs. And wealthy people have moved into formerly rural areas on a scale that's unprecedented in American history. This has been more significant than suburbanization for the last 20 years. And these excerpts, which represent a kind of secession from the not only the metropolis, but from the rest of American life, certainly of multicultural life, are very solidly Republican, with few exceptions. But the actual cadre of the movement, of course, are the mega churches. And I'm always startled by how to the extent some people underestimate uh, their influence within the contemporary Republican Party. They will mobilize as many uh, precinct workers or more than existing American unions are. And they are, of course, little monoliths, little miniature uh, autocracies in themselves. And we've seen absolutely no movement or dissent in uh, the last month by the major conservative religious leaders after uh, the 6th of January. And so this gives Trump and his would-be family dynasty <laughs> a survival power uh, that's quite exceptional. Now, if you're a Republican senator, you know, you have to be thinking about Democratic voters. You have to be thinking about uh, the contested suburbs where Republicans and Democrats, are, you know, have rough parity. But these congressional districts, particularly where they're gerrymandered, or where they're based on the oil industry or agribusiness, like here in California, the uh, southern part of the Great Valley, the San Joaquin Valley, and in the northernmost part of the valley, are Republican fortresses. And they're basically the same people who would have been the associated farmers back in the 1930s, burning down oaky shacks and beating uh, 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 left-wing union organizers uh, 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 to death. But really, the religious right is, is the key here, as it was in the election and victory of Trump in 2016. So uh, you've uh, given us uh, at least a little bit of hope that there's a section of you know, almost 20 million people that uh, are not hardcore Trump supporters. But we still have this convergence of crises, public health, environmental devastation, food insecurity, jobs, education, and defending civil liberties uh, on the one hand and dealing with uh, the, uh, the uh, armed right on the other. And uh, I'm somebody active in uh, eviction defense, so I'm very aware of the problem of impending evictions keeps get extending. Oh yes, we have a moratorium till March uh, 31st, but uh, it's still gonna be winter. Um, and uh, the fact is that uh, 
all this debt is building up with uh, uh, people who uh, have unpayable debts. So is there a way, uh, and this is really my last question to you, where we on the left have so little organization? Uh, yes, we have the unions. Yes, we have small socialist groups. Yes, we have DSA, which is 80,000 members. But that's relatively small when you're thinking of the mega churches. So how does the socialist left and progressive forces attempt to build effective coalitions and to demand what's needed? Well, I don't think the situation is uh, quite as bleak. It's rather, it's very paradoxical because on one hand, on a local level, a regional level, you have some tremendous people's movements, whether it's mobilization of black voters in Georgia or uh, Latinos in Southern Arizona, uh, uh, National Nurses United, which has emerged as the major tribune and voice to, uh, of social justice. But, and you have something that I, I think people our generation always hoped for, but never believed was really possible. It's a sudden appearance of a mass constituency for socialism. Now, what kind of socialism, what does socialism mean? Well, you know, that's up for debate, uh, you know, and that's a, a, a crucial discussion. But every poll shows that voters under 35 have far more positive opinion of something called socialism than they do of actual existing capitalism. But the paradox, the problem is on a, uh, and this, by the way, is not just uh, a result of having Marxist professors in your junior college. Uh, <clears throat> it has, you know, a direct economic base in the downward mobility of recent college graduates, particularly those from first generation uh, college family, a kind of miseration of a generation of uh, people who've gone to community, uh, you know, state colleges. But the paradox is this, that nationally, the left has no organizing center or centers. DSA is big, but I, you know, I may just be too isolated and out of it here in my bunker in San Diego. But it doesn't act as a national uh, a force. It consists of various uh, <clears throat> factions and elements, some of which are doing outstanding work. But nationally, they're incapable of giving direction, uh, particularly in terms of unifying these struggles and the adoption of a uh, common agenda, a united front. Uh, acid word. I mean, Black Lives Matter has been the most unexpected and extraordinarily successful movement uh, since the civil rights, since SNCC in the 1960s, which it in some ways resembles. But we are dealing with, as you emphasize, convergent crisis, a set of catastrophes in the daily life of working people. And we can expect in the future that conditions are gonna be 
the, the, the economy is only the public sector can create high paying jobs. Only the public sector employment can counteract the impacts of the application of artificial intelligence to uh, the economy. Services is, is, is much production. And we're not going to see a public jobs policy that's remotely uh, adequate to the task. So it's in some ways like millions of ordinary Americans went to sleep sometime in uh, late March or April, and it was 2020. They woke up the next day, it was 1933 out. And that hasn't changed. So, you know, we're faced with, I, I think, an epic, a potentially titanic social struggle. But the key thing here that the, the left must do and progressives writ large must do is they must not yield the momentum of economic populism to the far right. Because Facebook, Apple, Amazon are deeply hated by people in this country for good reason. And we should be giving definition and leadership uh, to the struggles uh, against them. And we should be doing so, setting an agenda and uh, trying to generate struggles without being synchronized to whatever is going on with the Democrats, even the most progressive Democrats uh, in Congress. I mean, there is immense stored up angry, anger in this country. And we don't wanna just give that away uh, to the economic populace uh, uh, far right. And that's a, that's a very great danger. That's more serious than the, the militia groups or, uh, you know, these, you know, little underground militias and uh, uh, so on. I'm not saying that it's not a risk to all of us, but the big question we need to confront is not letting them use the economic and existential crisis of working class life. Uh, as a train for them to colonize and define. So uh, what I hear from people is that uh, they're very anxious to get back to normal. But what's obvious, I think in this discussion, although someone thought it was too grim, uh, is that uh, there isn't going to be a return to normality. That this, we've turned a, we've turned a page and uh, so how do we organize uh, for that? Um, there's a, a, a Joe Riley uh, has a has a question. David Foster Wallace once wrote that anything I've ever let go of still has my claw marks on it. We keep hearing about so many Americans that are clinging to a mythological past. What aspects of Americans' mythological past? are you having a hard time letting go of? I suppose I'm remain as disoriented as I have been <laughs> uh, for the last 20 years, simply by the decline, 
uh, traditional manufacturing employment and the great workplaces that were the crucibles of uh, left-wing and struggles in this country. On the other hand, look at what's happened in healthcare. I mean, uh, for various reasons, I've spent oh, somewhere along the lines of uh, 350, 400 trips to Kaiser Permanente in the last five years uh, because I have cancer. And I found it absolutely fascinating because look, what's really the difference between an auto plant where 2,500 people punch a time clock every morning and a big medical provider a hospital where you have 1,200, 1,500 people who are doing the same, doing the same thing. And the pandemic and the fact that they've been, you know, left to shift for themselves under such dangerous circumstances and overwhelming demands. I think this is really radicalizing uh, healthcare workers. And there are a couple of million more healthcare workers in this country than there are uh, industrial workers uh, at the moment. So one of the things that we need to hope happens in the next year is this leads to a renewed major organizing campaign of health workers in you know, every job description and occupational uh, uh, stratus. This is somewhere where uh, unionism has to grow. Uh, and of course, faces much fewer obstacles than attempts to organize things like uh, Amazon or, or uh, you know, or Silicon Valley. But just as I was still, you know, lost in my 20th century nostalgia for big factories and Bonnie industrial workers, uh, the world of labor in many ways remains the, uh, the same. People punch time cards in casinos or hospitals, uh, or for that matter, in, in high schools. It's not that much different uh, from, uh, you know, beating steel. Although I'd say what's really important is to do it in an industrial way rather than having... Absolutely. Uh, right. Right on. That's absolutely... When you, when you think about it industrially, the same thing is true with schools. But they have you, you know, either organized or unorganized in, you know, 50 different uh, categories. So uh, Luke asks a question, can my comment on the rapid mutations of the virus in different places and how that impacts our public health response? Epidemiologists are raising alarm about impending strains that are more contagious and more deadly and more resistant to existing vaccines? Well, there's two ways that um, RNA viruses like influenza and coronavirus evolve. One is through random point mutations as is occurring right now uh, uh, with the emergence of these new strains in South Africa, Britain, and in California. In other words, as 
the population of infected people continues to grow almost exponentially. It's inevitable that it's mainly maybe one out of a billion mutations that occurs actually increases the chances of survival of the genome of a particular uh, uh, virus, and then it can diffuse more more quickly. And this is uh, this is called uh, genetic drift, but there's a far more radical thing that ha can happen, which is that viruses can exchange genes between each other. And this is what makes influenza so incredibly dangerous. Because for instance, pigs can catch influenza from birds and from humans. If they have simultaneous infections, parts of the human transmissible influenza variant can confer that gene onto uh, a wild and far more <clears throat> uh, deadly bird-like uh, uh, influenza. And then you have something like what happened in 1918 led to at least 40 million deaths across uh, uh, the world. I mean, we have to understand that the, the viral world is enormous. And we still have little idea of all the things that we're doing to influence its evolution. But the absence of basic medical care, immune compromise through hunger and lack of sanitation, these are all great accelerants for uh, the evolution of these very primitive and simple uh, uh, genomes. And they're evolving at a rate uh, a million or maybe even a billion times faster than uh, the genomes of, uh, of animals. So we have, we have evolution on a huge fast forward. But the point is that if you want to control that evolution, you have to control the spread. And uh, if we were able to implement 10 times as many vaccinations in the next month, we could control things like the South African variant, but that won't happen. And it will spread around the world and become probably the dominant form until some new, more successful variant uh, emerges. But remember again that, that coronavirus has killed 2 million people. It has, and it's about 10 times more deadly than the seasonal flu. There's no other uh, viral families, particularly the, the, the RNA viruses. And that I find one of the most uh, amazing things and shocking things to occur through this is Trump back in March says, well, this is no worse than the flu. Flu kills 30, 40,000 Americans a year. What's the big deal? Well, why isn't it a big deal that influenza kills 30 or 40,000 mainly older people a year when it's well within the realm of modern science to create a universal influenza vaccine? 
that works on the stable, not the transient or variable parts of the outer surface protein uh, of, you know, of influenza. The thing is that big pharma advocates development of vaccines and antivirals and uh, new antibacterial because antibiotics, because there's no profit in it. You want to make money in big pharma, you pick out guys like me who are going to have heart disease or this, the sexual dysfunctions or, or something. Viagra makes you billions, not antivirals that'll save hundreds of thousands of lives in poor countries. So another question, uh, Christopher, um, Christopher, I think it's Hendricks, asks about, uh, well, we know that the pandemic uh, is uh, particularly vir virulent in certain areas like uh, 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 nursing homes where it's 1% of the population, but 40% of the deaths or in Detroit where we're 80% of the population is African-American and we were really uh, devastated at the very beginning. Uh, things have gotten a little bit better now. So uh, prisons is another area of course where there are just, uh, you know, it just sweeps right through uh, prisons. So um, uh, he asks if Medicare for all is not an option due to the intransigence of both Republicans and Democrats, what political actions can people take to counter these failures, especially when you're dealing with nursing homes? In the case of the nursing home industry, which is largely a parasite on Medicaid and Medicare, the solution is to deprivatize it. The, the whole industry is a dangerous Ponzi scheme. Uh, and it needs to be eliminated. It needs to be turned into public or, or, or non-profit hands. Now, at this point, something like 200,000 Americans have died in nursing homes or other long-term care facilities. Back in March, in late March, when the pandemic was beginning to grow exponentially, I started sending out a digest of scientific and political news about the pandemic every day uh, to a group of friends. Well, the first I published was an account from a friend of mine named Jim Straub uh, in Seattle. He happens to be the SEIU guy trying to organize or, or representing the nursing home in, uh, in Seattle, in, uh, Richmond, Seattle, I think, uh, district of Seattle were the first big cluster outbreak. He absolutely, he predicted with incredible precision exactly what was going to happen. He says the public health people, first of all, the home covers all this stuff up. But when they finally realized what's happening, that this is a, a huge, rapidly growing, deadly cluster, they sent public health people out to, you know, investigate. None of them interviewed the employees that I represent who'd all tell them that the wages are so low that probably about half of them moonlight in another nursing uh, uh, facility. So that out of initial club, the people who work there are taking the disease to another nursing home and from that nursing home to another. It was obvious from the beginning that a matter was going to occur 
in nursing homes. There should have been an immediate federal task force to address that. There should have been enormous pressure. We needed a popular coalition and one that didn't abandon the streets uh, uh, to demand that states and the federal governments uh, enforce uh, health and safety regulations in these homes. The Obama administration, the, the chief demand of nursing home workers, by the way, was minimum, minimal staffing level. Okay, the stats are tiny compared to uh, the tasks and responsibilities uh, people have. And this is one of the key things that youth had been fighting for. And there was legislation, everyone was counting that Clinton would, would sign it on her first or second day in office. Of course, Trump came to power. And OSHA played absolutely uh, occupational self and hate, uh, safety and health administration play an absolutely criminal role. It got thousands of complaints from workers in nursing homes, meatpacking houses, uh, supermarkets, etc. And it had, by the fall, issued only, filed only one complaint against one employer. So it was a no-brainer what was going to happen in nursing homes. People were going to die in uh, mass, but nothing was done. Really, nothing at all was done. Very late in the day, and this doesn't fall entirely on uh, the Trump administration. Here in California, we have a limousine liberal, Gavin Newsom, as governor. He's been absolutely atrocious in application of health and safety uh, laws and inspection of nursing homes. And as a result, you end up with 20, 30, you know, fatalities in one home after another, same way in, the, uh, in New York uh, under Cuomo. But with so much, everything, so many things unpredictable and unexpected in this, the one thing that is Jim's job told me back in March that you could absolutely see what was going to happen. It was so easy to visualize the toll that was going to be taken was in the question of, of, of nursing homes. 200,000 people. And in Europe, not much uh, better. Holland, Belgium, France, Great Britain, all have had uh, catastrophes in long-term care facilities, especially where those are private, privately owned. So it comes down to, in a number of these cases, again, public health. And I just want to point out that in Detroit, it took the pandemic uh, for the uh, health de department and the water department to agree that people shouldn't have their water turned off for non-payment of rent of their, of their utility bill. I mean, we had thousands of people for several years who had no access to water and they didn't consider that a public health problem. So the um, next question we have is from uh, Steve Lee who uh, is uh, wondering if there's going to be a, a split in the Republican party 
as a result of this uh, churning between the uh, the uh, capitalist class and this uh, petty bourgeoisie, uh, very much dominated by the churches that you spoke about, Mike. Well, the day after the election, I I, um, I wrote something about how this would be liberation for part of the Republican Party. You have a group of Midwestern Republican senators like Cotton in Arkansas or what's his name, uh, Grazzi, who are young, very talented, incredibly ambitious, but whose futures seem to have been preempted almost entirely by uh, the Trump dynasty and his plan to run his kids for uh, uh, key offices. His defeat and then the events that led to a shattering of, of, of unity amongst you know, Republicans have given them an incredible opportunity as well to other Republicans because I looked at the Republican Congress people who did not vote to decertify uh, the election. And they tend almost entirely to be in suburban districts, which are either swing districts or where say the Democrats, the Republican 50% and Democrats 44, 45%, uh, something like that. To, to grow that social base and to uh, blunt the Clinton-Biden obsession with uh, making wealthy outer suburbs the, the, the crux of their whole electoral strategy. They needed to uh, 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 detach themselves. So the big question has been, is the, I wouldn't call them they're not moderates by any description. They're far rightists. They share much of the same broke, the Trump administration. So maybe we should call them the post-Trump Republicans of all kinds. The big question is, are they capable of organizing a political tendency, creating a political center and have uh, and attach some real social base uh, to that. And of course, we've now seen uh, how weak they are as Trump, as everyone knew he would do. He tolerates not the slightest dissent and it's made uh, McCarthy and O'Connell come in sackcloth to beg his forgiveness in Florida, going to consolidate this cult party, which will enjoy probably about a strength about equivalent to a third of House seats, possibly more, maybe more like 40%. The Republicans in the Senate are, as I said earlier, are probably, are probably better on. Yes, the Republican Party is both split and fully now radicalized to the extreme white supremacist far right. Starting with the Gintridge years, back during the Clinton administration, the Republican Party has become the first long established historical conservative party to be captured by the far, the far right. 
it's as if the far-right forces in Germany had conquered the CDU or that the Brexit pe people totally controlled now the Tory party. That's uh, uh, not impossible. This is a kind of epical moment in the history of Western politics since the, you know, the Second World War. And the problem is that the down ticket in the last November's election was a disaster for the Democrats. If black voters spectacularly helped them pull two chestnuts out of the fire and tie the Republicans in the Senate, the House races, the Democratic House cam uh, campaign committee was talking about running 15 or 20 new seats. They lost nine or 10 uh, seats. And in the state houses, which the Democrats have ignored as a national party, but the Republicans made the center of their political strategy beginning in 2010, when they just swept legislatures all across the country. They retained that power. They even won one house. Democrats had no impact at all. So this is a very strange kind of dual power situation where much of what the Democrats might attempt to do nationally will be thwarted at the state level. And where the Trump hardcore in Congress will continue to play and use extra parliamentary activity to you know, advance its cause. Remember Mussolini didn't suddenly sweep to victory like Hitler did in late 1932. Uh, they coexisted in parliament for six or seven years with liberals and social democrats, slowly eating away at, at those parties by terrorism and political uh, uh, violence. And I think I was actually too optimistic in asserting some weeks back that the post-Trumpites had a fighting chance. Uh, what will happen to them remains to be seen. We're in a very bad situation. I mean, Joe Manchin, who is a Republican, a center, centrist Republican for all real uh, purposes, he and a handful of Republican senators uh, manipulating their uh, so-called, you know, moderate and centrist position can do enormous harm to the, the more progressive parts of uh, the legislation. But Biden has a real problem in Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders is going to use the reconciliation progress, uh, process in the Senate in an aggressive and principled uh, ways. So far, we've seen Biden perhaps surprise many of us by his seemingly progressive uh, executive actions. So if you go to American Prospect, there's a fascinating interview uh, with Rolling Stone. One of the editors of American Prospect goes in detail on each of the executive actions. For instance, ending private prison ending privatization of Department of Justice functions. He points out that's that 9% of federal prisons are privatized. Three quarters of immigration detention centers are privatized, however. But the executive action only affects Department of Justice, not Homeland Security. And go down you know, the list and it seems like Biden is, is throwing the right punch, but he always pulls back on these punches so far. So there's actually there than meets the eye. So um, 
there are a few questions that are, are similar. And so I want to uh, take up two of them, but then ask you for a short answer on one that asks, do you still think that January 6th really wasn't a coup? Because after all, they had a scheme to try to bully their way through through Congress and to get it back in the Supreme Court. So are you still, Mike, convinced that uh, it was really a, a riot with uh, maybe some lynchings in mind, but nothing more than that? If you could answer that quest question quickly, then we'll go on to two uh, more complicated questions. If it was a coup, it was the most incompetent coup we've ever we've ever seen. It had no plan for actually seizing or holding a power. It was in a way a tantrum and fit thrown by Trump, which was frightening enough in itself. But to call it a coup or to get involved in uh, this whole debate on domestic terrorism and the need for new anti-terrorist legislation and so on. I don't think the left wants to go down that the road at all. I mean, let's just use be realist and objective about what happened and, and what didn't happen. Will there be some kind of low intensity civil war in this country from now on? Probably. But most threateningly to uh, union organizers and people of color uh, in the hardcore uh, red states. Because there is no Trumpian party organization in the sense of a party with an actual mass membership or a single party militia in a similar way to uh, the Italian fascists or the Nazis. There's an awful lot of liberal hysteria, which we should not buy into just because it's all focused in, in, you know, in anti-Trump. So the second uh, question that several people have asked is around uh, the religious right. Are they, are they particularly uh, focused on uh, some of the issues like the, the anti-abortion agenda, or is it more bitterness, more connected to a, a, a dour Protestant ethic? Or what, what is it that motivates uh, at least a, a vast majority of the megachurches? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, maybe more important than their textual reference or how they use biblical literalism to justify the gospel of wealth and uh, white supremacy is what they actually are and what they actually do. Now, I grew up in a town east of San Diego, which in the 1950s, most of the kids I went to school with were uh, Okies, Arkies, uh, West Texans, families that had uh, literally fled the death school. Fathers in the Navy, parents with, with defense jobs. But the aerospace industry in San Diego was highly organized. And so there was a solid union support. When the aerospace industry disappeared in the, uh, in the late 80s and 90s, uh, unionism in this town, El Cajon, California, uh, disappeared. It once had a daily progressive newspaper, the most progressive paper in, in California for many years. 
it disappeared. And because I still see people I grew up with, I spend a lot of time out there still. And watch how this Shadow Mountain Christian Church operates. This was the kind of campaign base for the two Duncan Hunters, father and son, for 40 years held the congressional seat in this area. And if you look at the way the church operates, it's dominated by local business people, but particularly developers, those who have an, uh, a direct interest in building in the eastern backcountry of San Diego County, which when I was a kid, my friends who lived in areas like that, you know, rode ponies and led a kind of rural life is reminiscent of where they came from. Now the mountains with ocean views are full of McMansions. Mm -hmm. I'm talking lots of McMansions, including one very real uh, 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 castle. So one of Duncan Hunter's uh, tasks was to keep the developmental frontier open, to pose any kind of environmental restrictions and so on. Simultaneously, he and his, his father and then him were the employees of uh, National Atomic, the former General Dynamics branch that makes uh, Predator uh, missiles. And the head of General Atomic had been the largest fundraiser to it. So the church has this very clear and in some ways very traditional power structure. Okay, Meld melding the nouveau riche and the military industrial complex. But through the church, it also extends an organization, organizational net over a vast swath of, 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 of daily life, controls the, uh, uh, the city council in the city of El Cajon. It has all kinds of welfare activities with substance addiction and, and homelessness. Ordinary working class people are welcome to the church. It gives them a complete structure and system of belief. But it also helps address some of the problems of the daily life, helping people get, get jobs or get some degree of, of welfare, and does what the Latter-day Saints have always done, saying, you don't need a welfare state when you have us. We're the welfare you know, state. So it's a political machine, just not, not only based on the, the church's quite fantastically right-wing and creationist politics, but it's built a kind of hegemony on a local level that influences everything. Composition of the school board, city uh, councils, uh, land development policies, almost anything you can think of falls within their grasp. And I think this is probably replicated a thousand times over uh, across the United States. So we shouldn't think of them just as churches. We should think of them as multifaceted social organisms, which extend their tentacles and roots into everything you know, they touch. I just want to uh, sort of underscore what, what Mike says. I remember 
many years ago, working right across the right across the line from a man who was a very right wing, you know, very fundamentalist Christian. And what I learned was that he used to, he was a drug addict and his family was falling apart. And it was the church that saved him. And I felt that he would always stay with that church because it had saved his life. It saved his family, very much similar to way the way many black workers in the South had been taught to read and write by the Communist Party. It's that, that incredible sense of loyalty uh, that develops and is, uh, I, I think, the, the uh, social network that these churches set up and an educational network too is really important. So let me go on to another question and I wanna read uh, a couple of things that people have said because it's basically about what do we do? Uh, Travelation says, at a time when people's expectations are so diminished, where people are infected by neoliberal individualism, what are your thoughts on how we can help develop collective struggle that would lead to real gains for working class people. Raising left-wing demands is easy. Winning anything is incredibly hard. And a second point is, as a new activist, what, where there are many new excited activists who want direction to make a meaningful impact and don't know what to focus on. And then the third thing I want to read is um, from Alan Moss. It seems like a new socialist left is being born, most obviously in the intense, immense growth in DSA, but without connections to what's valuable in past traditions. In my experience, DSA members are very open to considering these experiences like the United Front task, a tactic, but there's so few people in a position to transmit these lessons. Is there anything to be taken from the past eras of radicalization to figure out how to bring past experiences to bear in this new movement? And I would say, as people are trying to figure out what to do. So that's the big ball of wax, Mike. Well, I, I think you should be wary of underestimating the kinds of struggles uh, that are occurring, even if they take a kind of episodic uh, uh, form. I mean, Black Lives Matter was a, a revelation to me because my two younger children who identify with their mother as Mexican and go to a public high school became involved in it, but with the, their, their peer groups, which are, you know, working class immigrant Latino kids Somalis, some African-Americans, and they all got together and started going to these protests. My kids are the only ones who are kind of red diaper babies by, by, by any sense. These other kids are just, you know, the working class kids and they're radical as hell in an uncompromising way. Although obviously they're too young uh, to vote it. I kept trying to make the case why we had to vote for, for Biden in order to help, in order to choose which enemy we're going to uh, fight. I felt like I was a Menshevik trying to persuade a group 
uh, Bolsheviks. This is true widely across the country. This is an exceptional and unique generation politically. And in terms of the root values these kids have, you know, their militant opposition to racism, any form of sexism or gender discrimination, but also their belief that the future has been looted in, in advance for them. I mean, they are quite angry and, and, and determined. And if you look across the country, I mean, the media made a big deal about white people being involved in Black Lives Matter protests. I was more struck in California by the way Latino kids and Asian kids uh, rallied to it and took, uh, took part in it. And all the, uh, I'm not sure I'm using the right terminology because I'm uh, very, very out of date here, but the kind of intersectional character, not just of the protest movement, but of their peer groups and the ease with which they cooperate. And here in California, of course, there's another issue which has to be addressed, which is the fact that two thirds of the people who are dying from coronavirus in California are Latinos, penalized for being essential workers, penalized for low wages, penalized for having multi-generational families, penalized for living in congested, crowded housing. So in other parts, maybe the burden of disease falls on uh, mainly African-American. But here in California, L Latinos are being decimated by that. I, uh, with my good comrade, John Wiener, I wrote a book that was published in the beginning of the year called Setting the Eye on Fire, LA in the 60s. And one of the things we emphasized in the book it's a very long book, 800 pages or something, a little unwieldy for most people, folks. One thing we have to emphasize that the key social group in 60s protests, more than any other, were minority high school kids, even junior high school kids, followed by the public junior colleges and state colleges, not the big universities, okay? It was the high school blowouts on the east side and a mass high school strike on the south side. This revealed the incredible capacity of, you know, of teenagers to take on you know, the most serious task of, of struggle and reforming society you know, with such audacity and such courage. I think that's all around us right now, if we're to look. I think the problem is not so much that, you know, you know, we, we lack class consciousness, or, uh, that social struggles, you know, are poorly formed or anything. It's not having a national direction. And finally, the last thing I'll say here is that this generation, I, I just find superb. But the left today, the DSA type left, has one huge Achilles heel, which is internationalism, okay? It is susceptible to kind of left-wing version of American firstism. Who has really raised the question of medical aid to poor countries, to sharing the vaccine, 
internationally. I'm sure somebody on the American left has said this. I just don't recall it. It certainly wasn't any of the debates. Yet at the same time, because of the nature of modern immigrant communities in the United States, because family are repatriating such important parts of their country's GNP, those families are linked together virtually on the internet. The, the basis for an internationalism rooted, the, the social base for internationalism is now incredibly broad and full of, full of potential to link directly with struggles uh, in the old country, to form new kinds of alliances. But it requires a lot that inscribes on its banners the two things, pardon me for being my own fundamentalist, the two things that Marx insisted in the Communist Manifesto were the only two things that distinguished communists from the mass of the workers' movement. First, that in struggles of the present, they represented the needs of the future. And in struggles of the local and the national, they represented the interests of, of the working class. And this pandemic demonstrates to what a complete extent we can escape globalization and that we can't imagine, you know, uh, kind of cloistered New Deal like in the, you know, the 1930s. My wife and her family are totally absorbed in what's happening to their relatives and communities, you know, back in Mexico. The left needs to build on that. So as you can see from the beginning our, of our, this is a beginning discussion. Those of us who've been involved in social movements and socialist politics have a lot to learn and uh, to think about. And I'm not quite sure you can exactly pick a campaign. Sometimes a campaign like Black Lives Matter picks you. Indeed. Um, but hopefully this has been a constructive beginning and we thank Mike for his contribution as he's recovering from his uh, surgery uh, this evening. And we thank all who helped uh, put this webinar together and for your participation. If you didn't get a chance to read a couple of the articles on the Solidarity Events page, including an interview with Mike, be sure to check them out. Take a look at the January, February against the current, or in fact, get a subscription. Let's continue our discussion and our organizing, and I'm inviting you to a webinar on Friday, February 19th, um, that we're co-sponsoring with Lasan and Internationalism from Below, the protest movement and the future of China. Um, so uh, look for that. The, we're having a featured guest, Ao Long Yu, who will be discussing his book, Hong Kong in Revolt, um, which will talk about the incredibly massive and innovative protests of last year and what are the stakes for that of that movement for uh, for for us and and for world geopolitics? As a matter of fact, you can find out more information about this upcoming event. And in fact, um, all all of you registered will be sure to send you an uh, an update on that, which will be Friday, February nineteenth. So once again, thanks to all, and especially to Mike Davis, and good night.
Thank you.